you want to keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2 as we examine again this very rich text together, one that uh, is familiar to you. Certainly some of those verses that were read were familiar to you. I trust that uh, the rest of the text will be even more familiar as we continue to examine it. We're in kind of a mini-series here on what the Bible says about God being mighty to save. I mentioned last week that this text in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians really flows out of a prayer at the end of chapter 1, something that Paul prays for believers is that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. And he says that that power is like the working of of God in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. And then Paul goes on and describes this beginning in chapter 2, and he says, here is that power that God worked in you. You were dead, but now God has raised you up, and you are alive. And this is God's mighty power. It is his mighty work in saving people from their sin, in saving us from our sin. It is a mighty act of God. So for our attention this morning, we really want to look at verses 4 through 7. And let me set the stage this way. Do you know what this is? That's the iconic... American landmark, the Golden Gate Bridge. How many of you have seen that in person? I've seen that. I went to San Francisco several years ago, but that is one thing on my list I absolutely had to see, the Golden Gate Bridge and all of its glory. Well, this month, did you know that the Golden Gate Bridge is 86 years old? We actually have a little celebration scheduled each year in May when they remember this. It was built in 1937. It's an engineering feat. Uh, It's cost $35 million to construct in 1937. In today's dollars, that's about $1.6 billion. Expensive bridge. The bridge extends 1.7 miles across that golden gate, that mile stretch that enters the San Francisco Bay from the Pacific Ocean. It connects the city of San Francisco with Marin County and thus avoids a rather long trip around the bay. And that was its intent, to connect those two peninsulas, as it were. It's a bridge. It's a bridge that's often celebrated. As I mentioned, it's the 86th anniversary Uh, When it was built in 1937, there were about 3 million cars a day that went across that bridge. Today, there's almost 16 million cars that cross that bridge uh, every day. Not every day, I think that's annual. Well, our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, is a bridge. It's connecting two things. It's saying how it got from one thing to the next thing. It's a bridge. And what is this bridge? Well, the whole passage teaches us that God is mighty to save people by his grace and for his glory. And that's included in this bridge. Let me show you the bridge. 
Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, of all humanity, the end of verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So how do you get from children of wrath, the end of verse 3, down to look at chapter 2, verse 10? We are his workmanship. How do you get from a child of wrath to now being God's masterpiece? Or how do you bridge this? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but now, look at the end of verse 10, now you are, or I'm sorry, look at verse Five, you are made alive, and verse 8, you have been saved. How do you get from dead in trespasses and sins to now alive and safe? Or how do you get from, look at again, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, in which you once walk. It's talking about walking in trespasses and sins, being bound in sin. How do you get from that to the end of verse 10? Now, good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the contrast? Death, now alive. Trapped, walking in sins, now walking in the good works that God has ordained. Children of wrath, now to God's masterpiece. Well, verses 4 through 7 tells us. And notice how they begin. Look at verse 4. But who? Who? The only way you get from death to life, trapped in sin to living for God, the only way you get there is that God has to do something. And it begins with what God did. You see, when we were dead in trespasses and sins and without hope, God stepped in and did something. What did he do? This morning, very simply, I want us to note this principle on the screen for you that God is mighty to save people by his grace and for his glory and we're going to walk through these verses, verses 4 through 7 in Ephesians 2, and we're just going to answer some questions. What did God do? What was his activity? How did he do it? How did he make this happen? What was his purpose? And what was his goal? And the text will answer these questions, and it's my goal that by the end of this sermon that maybe you came in here and you had a sense of what salvation is, what it means to be saved. But I trust that by the time we're done today, you leave this place and you're like, I've never seen it like that. That's powerful. And so let's pray and ask God to help us see these things. Lord, I'm aware of my weakness and my great need of you even to convey these things that are profound 
And so I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that he would use the words you would have me to speak to do his work in the hearts of your people and even those here today who are not your people. That they must see what you have done to save people. So I trust you now that grace would be conveyed. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by noting God's activity. What did God do when we were dead in trespasses and sins, walking the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience and were by nature children of wrath? What did God do? Well, very simply, if you look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, do you realize that this is one sentence? I mean, there's some different punctuation in our English translation, but in the Greek language, it's one long sentence. And whenever you diagram a sentence, what do you do? Well, you look for what is the main verb, right? What's the one thing that is the main thing? And then who or what is acting in that way? Or, or how are those pieces fitting together? And it's not until you come to verse 4 that you find the main action in this whole long sentence. And what is the primary action? It says in verse 4, I'm sorry, the, the action's in verse 5. Verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead <clears throat> in our trespasses, he did what? He did what? Made us alive. Well, you're sitting here this morning and you're breathing and taking in nourishment and most of you, your eyes are open still and, and you look very much alive. But this text says, well, actually, we come into this world dead. And that's what we looked at last week the death is in the sphere of trespasses and sins. That is, those things that violate God's will. And we are, as it were, enslaved to those things. And we are very much alive to that, but dead to God. Chapter 4 says we're alienated from the life of God. So what does it mean to be made alive? <clears throat> what does that look like? This is the main thing going on in this whole passage. When we were dead, God made us alive. The technical term for that, that that maybe you've heard, is this, regeneration. Or maybe you've heard of people talk about it this way, have you been born again? And usually when you hear that kind of speech or you tell someone that kind of thing, they look at you kind of weird like, oh, you're one of those. Well, I don't want to shy away from that language at all because the New Testament everywhere talks about this. Let me just give you some samples. <clears throat> God made us alive. That's what he did. John chapter 1 says it this way. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were what? Born. <clears throat> it's the idea of made alive. 
not of flesh nor of the will, not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. We read this. Since you have been what? Born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 1 John chapter 2 says it this way. If you know that he, that is Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been what? Born of him. New life. 1 John chapter 3 says it this way. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. It talks about in this language that something wasn't there, and now something is there. There's this new life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we would say born of God, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he met with him. And Nicodemus came and said, Lord, uh, Messiah, Rabbi, we've seen these wonderful miracles. And Jesus looks at this well-seasoned, well-studied man. And he says, Nicodemus, don't you know, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again have new life. Now, I just want to ask you this morning, is your conversion to Christ like coming alive? When I say things like that, are you like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That seems so strange and foreign. But might I suggest to you that if you truly do know the Lord today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That there is something in me that wasn't there before. And it's like I am now alive to God, where before I really had no time for Him. Becoming a believer, experiencing true salvation and conversion is not simply a reform. It's not simply easing into a way of life. It's not simply accepting a subcultural kind of lifestyle that looks very good and clean and neat. It's a matter of coming to life. Has that ever happened to you? There's more than what God says about this in the text, and we'll we'll apply it. So look back at chapter 2. He says, when we were dead, he made us alive, and he did some other things. Look at verse 6. And raised us up and seated us in heavenly places. So here's what he says. You were dead, he made you alive, raised you up. Right now, you're seated in heavenly places. You said, I thought I was seated in church. You are. This is talking about, we'll get to this, your union with Christ. But the point I want to make is this. Salvation is not simply reformation. Some people talk about becoming a Christian because they were in dire straits. Their marriage was falling apart, and I need somebody to save me and save my marriage. Well, that might be true, but if there's never a coming alive in that, 
that's not salvation. Well, I was unfulfilled in life, so I was looking for some kind of purpose, and praise God, I finally found my purpose, and now I'm a Christian. Well, if that's apart from coming to life and being born again, you are no Christian. It's not rescue from poverty or a bad circumstance. It is coming to life. It is salvation from sin. It is now being set free from the bondage of sin and being alive to God. Let me illustrate it this way. Some people think in these terms, well, I'm a Christian because I believe Christian doctrine. I mean, I know what the Bible says. I read the Bible a lot. I understand that. I can even give you some some information about the Bible and Christian doctrine. Therefore, I must be a Christian because I know all these things. And the book of James comes back and says, don't be foolish. Don't you know the demons believe those things? Satan and his horde know the Bible. They know what it teaches. Do they have new life? No. New life is not about new doctrine. Somehow now I know Christian truth. That's a part of it. That's not all of it. New life is not about new duties. Well, I became a Christian because I was going in a bad direction, and so I knew I needed to get around some better friends. So I gathered myself around better friends, and they kind of helped me put off some things and change my lifestyle, and now I'm in a much better lifestyle. And might I suggest to you that there are people that to this day will actually come into your neighborhood and they are dressed very conservatively and look very wholesome and speak of a wholesome image and they'll knock on, their, on your door and they'll introduce themselves as people from the Church of Latter-day Saints. And they've adopted a direction, a lifestyle that looks very conservative, but they are not born again. So if being born again is not new doctrine, it's not new duties, or or now I do these things, I look in a particular way, what is it? John Piper appropriately describes it in this way. It's new delight. New delights. What do you mean by that? When you are born again, your loves change. Previously, you loved sin. And you loved yourself. And what it did for you. And you pursued it to all lengths. And when you are truly born again, there's something in you now that actually hates that sin. Oh, you may still commit it, but when you do, there's a different attitude toward it. There's a sorrow. There's a repentance. There's a true grief over that. But not only that, there's a new delight in you that says, oh, how I want God to be honored in my life. How I love him and I desire to draw close to him. How I want to be holy, as he has said, and to live in a holy way. And it delights your soul to think of that possibility. My friend, that's new life. 
It's from the inside out. Does that describe you? I recently had someone describe it to me in this way. This is a simple thing. It was a new believer who, who had just come to Christ, and I'm, I'm asking them about this, and here's what they told me. They said, you know what? It never really, really phased me so much when I was around people at work who didn't know the, the Lord, and they would say things like, oh, Jesus Christ. And they said, but now nothing bothers me more. It's grating on In a very simple way, beloved, that's a new delight. How, how dare you speak of my Lord in that way? It's a new satisfaction that Jesus would be exalted and not drugged through the mud. Is that true of you? What do you really love? This is what God did. This is his plan. He made us together. How is this possible? How did God do this? Well, the text explains it. Look back again at verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive. And what's the next word? Together. Here's what's interesting. This idea of being made alive and raised up and seated. There's a Greek word there. It has a little... Uh, preposition, as it were, on the front, and that word on the front means together. He made us alive together. He seated us together. He raised us up together. Together with who? Well, the text says very clearly, God made us alive together with Christ. This is how God makes us alive. He makes us alive that through faith in him, we are united with Christ, the giver of all life. And in our union with him, he now is alive in us. This is how God always blesses his people. Back in chapter 1 and verses 3 through 7, he talks about being in Christ. And the joy of being found in Christ and salvation through Christ. And over a hundred times in his epistles, the apostle Paul addresses this. He goes on in verse 6 and he talks about us being raised up and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, it's there again in the wording. Well, what does this look like? What are you talking about being united with Christ? Well, let me show you where Paul explains this. Look at Romans chapter 6. And I want you to turn there in your Bibles to see the text. God made us alive. How did he do this? He did this by uniting us with Christ. Through faith in him, we are united with him. And here's where Paul teaches on this. Look at Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 3. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into who? Okay, that's very important because when you think baptism, what do you think of? That's what you think of, right? If you want to see that at work, you'll have to come back tonight, okay? That's baptism into water. But what's he talking about here? Baptized into, into Christ, into a person? Immersed into a person? How does that happen? What he's talking about is not water baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism. 
It's when you come to faith in Christ, it's like you are immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You are united with him. And here's what that means if you keep reading verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. That sounds like being born again, doesn't it? Here's what he's describing. When you came to faith in Christ, you were united with Christ, and his death became your death. And now you who were dead in trespasses and sins, bound to those things, through faith in Christ, that is broken. And as Jesus Christ was raised to walk in newness of life, you are united in him, raised to walk in a different direction. He goes on in verse 5. He says, if we've been united with Jesus in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, we know that our old self, what's that old self? That's our old sin nature dead in trespasses and sins. It was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be what? Brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What he's saying is, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you're made alive, it changes you. No longer are you enslaved to sin, but you're walking in a different way. There's new delights, there's new desires, and they are leading you in an entirely different direction. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. This is what it means to be united with Christ through faith in Christ. In my union with him, the power of sin has been destroyed, and I'm alive to God. Jesus describes this in this way. He says, think of it like a vine and branches. You come to faith in Christ, and now suddenly you are put into the vine. And there's this main vine that provides all the life and sustenance to the branches. And you're like a branch connected to that vine. And his life is living through you because you're alive now. Back in the book of Ephesians, go back to chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but in chapter 1, he talks about our union with Christ being in this terms. Think of it this way if you're trying to picture what is union with Christ. It's like a head and a body. Jesus is the head, and we are his body connected to him. There's a vital union, but he's providing life. And it's this vital union between the head and the body. This is what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, when you came to faith in Christ, God made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you in heavenly places. Where is Jesus Christ today? He's at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? You and I have a mystic union with him. And being in Christ, it's like we are at God's right hand. What does this mean? Well, I don't know about you, but for me, that brings great security. 
Because you know what? I'm not perfect. And I still wrestle with my flesh. And I still get irritated and agitated. And I still do things that displease the Lord. And it grieves my heart that I do. But I know this. I'm united with Jesus and that will never change. And God did that. I had nothing to do with that. God made me alive. This is what God did. He makes us alive. He raised us up. He seated us. How did he do it? He did it together in Christ. Why would God do this? What's God's motive? Why would he take someone dead in sin and make them alive? Well, look at the text. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, wealthy in mercy. Why would God save anyone? It's because God is rich in mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Aren't you glad God's merciful? Apart from Christ, what do we all deserve? Apart from Christ, God's standard for every human being on the earth is this, absolute perfection. You must love God supremely. You must never put anything in his place. That's my standard. And if you fail in but one iota in that regard, in your heart or in your life, you're guilty. And because you're guilty, what do you deserve? The text tells us very clearly the end of verse 3, we are children of wrath. See, that sounds so harsh that God would be angry at sin. Here's why it sounds so harsh. We, my friends, sin is our atmosphere. We say things like this. Well, nobody's perfect. Cut them a break. Give them a pass. Why? Because we know that. That's the air we breathe. Imagine you're a being that never, ever have you ever had a stray thought, an evil desire, You are perfectly righteous and holy. And even the slightest deviation from that elicits a firm response because it's right. But God is merciful. Aren't you glad? Because if he were only just What would God have to do to Matt Fagan? Because I have sinned against an eternally holy God. God would have to punish me forever. But God is merciful. In fact, the text says God is rich in mercy. What Paul, I think, is alluding to is this experience with Moses on Mount Sinai. And it talks about Moses having 
this encounter with God. And it says the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. Moses said, God, show me who you are. And here's how the Lord responded. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And you read that and you say, yeah, but what about those times where we read that, that God like struck people down and, 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 and God seems very uh, adamant about you know, keeping his law and there's certain things that will happen. And we say, it doesn't seem like he's long-suffering. And all I want you to do is just think of your life over the past week. And if God were to enact his faithful, righteous justice on you, where would you be? And that's not only true of God's people who are under the blood of Christ. Do you realize that's true of people who populate this planet and have the audacity to say, God doesn't even exist. It's a fairy tale like the Easter Bunny. And every day they get up and they breathe the air we breathe and they get the sun that we enjoy all the time thumbing their nose at their creator. And the Bible says God is rich in mercy. He's long-suffering. And the only reason it shocks us when God steps out and, and somebody does drop dead is because it doesn't happen all the time. But it should. But God is merciful. He's long-suffering. He's patient. The psalmist describes it this way in the 103rd Psalm. The Lord is merciful and gracious He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? Nobody knows. They put that new fancy telescope up there, right? I think it's called the James Webb Telescope, maybe. It replaced the Hubble. And they say, now we're going to see even deeper into space. And they keep looking, and they're like, ah, it's still going. Don't, can't quite, let's get a bigger telescope. And God says, you, you can't measure my mercy, my steadfast love. Why would God save anyone? He is a God who is rich in mercy. He is. Not only that, his love for us is great. Look at verse 4. God who is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. God does love you. For God so loved the world that he gave. God does love you. And he showed it by giving his own son. And here's the thing. It's not because we were lovely. We often love because something is lovely. God loves in spite of something being very ugly. And he chose to love people who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
And this is what motivated God. Sometimes I think we get confused about this issue of salvation and we think of it this way. You're walking along the beach and you hear a cry from the water. Someone is drowning and you are a champion swimmer and you are well trained in being a lifeguard. And someone's screaming out and drowning. What must you do? What's the right thing to do? Save the person. Plunge in there pull them out of their helpless condition, and save them. Let me ask you, is that a proper understanding of salvation? We had a terrible, desperate situation, and God just had to do something. He had to. No, he didn't. fact is, he chooses to. Why? Because he's merciful. And because of his love for us. I think the previous illustration is a misunderstanding of salvation because it focuses salvation on me. I have a need and God's here to meet that need. And that plays out in Christian ministry all across our nation. Everything's about me and God's just another way for me to have my need met, including salvation. That's not it at all. fact is, I would be getting just what I deserve. But God's merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. In fact, the Bible says, when we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. God showed his love for us, not in that we were lovely and he saved us, but when we were lost in sin, Jesus died for us. I end with this. What was God's goal in all this? His motive, his rich mercy, his great love for us. What was his goal? This is beautiful. Don't miss this. Look at verse 7. So that. All right, when you're, when you're reading anything or you're even writing that, what are you doing? You're making a conclusion. I've given you all of this. God made us alive. He seated us together with Christ because of his great mercy, his rich in mercy, his great love toward us, so that. This is like the big arrow pointing and saying, it's all for this reason. Don't miss this. Why would God make anyone alive? Ultimately, it was to display something. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages. What is this? coming ages. We're in an age right now. We're in a time right now. But it says there are other times that are coming. There are, there are other ages that are yet beyond us that we will be in. And that there's something in these coming ages that God wants to do. That's why he made us alive. Verse 7, so that in the coming to ages, he might show. He's going to put something on display. What is he going to display? He's going to display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what salvation is all about. Can you believe this? It's all about God. It was never about you. Think what? thought it was. I needed to be saved. That's why, that's why I responded and God made me alive. 
God says, okay, that's a part of it. But if you stop there, you've missed the whole thing. It's kind of like this when, when you're explaining how a car works to a child or young adult, and you're talking about an engine uh, or just the car in general. You're saying, okay, here's how the car works. You push the little pedal, it goes. You put on the other pedal, it stops. And there's a little thing you steer it with. And you tell your, your children, this is a car. And when they get a little older, you start explaining other things about the car to them, like Okay, your car operates on an internal combustion engine. There's a four-stroke process of intake, compression, power, and exhaust. And, and this is how it works together. And there's a transmission that transmits that power to the wheels in a certain way. And this is how these things work together. And you're giving them all the pieces and the technical things. This is what's going on in Ephesians 2. Sometimes we look and we say, God so loved the world that he saved the world. He saved me. Thank God I'm saved. Yes, that's absolutely true, but that can be a childish way of looking at salvation. The real reason God did it was for him and his glory. And that you would actually display something about him in a coming age forever. Now, how are you with that? You're like, well, that sounds kind of selfish. Is there anything inside of you that delights in that and says, oh, that that were the case now? If it is, my friend, you've been born again. That's that new life that says the only thing I want in life is that God would be glorified, that he would be magnified, even through saving a wretch like me. God saved us to be trophies of his redeeming grace, and the trophy case is the throne of the Son of God in heaven. This is why I say that God is mighty to save people by his grace and for his glory. Why would God save anybody? Why would God save a wretch like me trapped in sin? It's because I am a wretch. And by doing so, God would show something he otherwise couldn't. He would show that he is merciful and gracious. Some of you may ask the question, you know, how does this show God glory, right? It's, it's God's intent that there would be living creatures to see him and know him and thus proclaim his glory in the earth. How does God do that? God does that through creation. He created this beautiful world and planet, and through that, people look at it, and God says, I'm big. Here's my vastness, eternality, divine wisdom. His power in creation demonstrates God's omnipotence. God's design of the cell and the different species of 1.4 million classified species on this planet demonstrates God's wisdom. We look at that and we're amazed at God's wisdom. Well, how does God possibly show people he's merciful and gracious and forgiving? 
only way that happens is if God creates a world in which it's possible for people to rebel and sin. And that's exactly what he did. And we all in Adam chose to sin and fall. But God even took that and said, I will show through that that I am merciful and gracious and kind. And this is a part of my eternal character. And it always has been. And in the ages to come, my friend, if you've been made alive in Christ and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be a trophy of God's grace. And imagine in heaven today, here's a mountain of a man like Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the gospel. And he's in heaven around the throne of God looking to Christ. And the angels are looking at him and they're saying, how did you take him? And work in him that way. That's mind-blowing. Because 1 Peter tells us that angels long to look into these things. Someday, my friend, you're going to make God the talk of heaven. Are you okay with that? If you are, you've been born again. This past summer, my family and I, just a few weeks ago, we went to Washington, D.C. And we went to the Air and Space Museum in D.C., and I was looking a little bit about what was there. And one thing I, I wanted to see and get my eyes on was a moon rock, a rock that had been taken from the moon, that thing you hang in the sky, brought back. There it is in a glass case. And ask my family. They probably thought it was awkward. I spent a long time looking at that thing. You know, I'm just, and I'm trying to picture that thing was, you know, hanging in space. And what it reminded me of is that when, when we went to the moon, uh, what they found when mankind went to the moon, first landing in 1969, they, they went on that rock in space that was free of vegetation and water. No plants obscuring the surface, no water. It's made of a crystallized dust that's highly reflective. And even this rock in the case I'm looking at it, it's, it's like reflecting the light in different ways. And, and when they discovered this on the moon, they said, you know, it's not real exciting. It's like this big reflective rock hanging in space. But its goal is that it reflects the sun. And it does so masterfully at night. And you know what it's like to be out on a moonlit night. But the glory is not its own. It's the glory of the sun. Beloved, that's why God saved you. It's not for a glory of your own. It's that you would reflect the glory of God. You would reflect the glory of the Son of God in his mercy to make you alive. That's new birth. Does that describe you? May God help us to evidence new birth in Christ. Let's pray.